You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. In this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing at or coming soon to film scene. Our lineup includes the Todd Haynes cult classic Velvet Goldmine, which plays this Saturday night at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Next, we'll be discussing Art and Craft, a documentary about the prolific art forger Mark Landis, which plays at film scene on Tuesday, February 10th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Film Forum. Finally, we'll be discussing this year's Oscar-nominated live-action shorts. The Oscar-nominated shorts will continue to play at Film Scene throughout this week and the next. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Catherine Steinbach, the Programming Director of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, glad to be here. And filling in this week for Changmin Yu, we have Patrick Brown, also a member of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome back, Pat. Thank you. Also glad to be here. <laughs> I'm Leah Vonderheide, Bijou's executive director. I should also mention that all three of us are film studies PhD students in the Department of Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. Let's start with our first film, Velvet Goldmine, which stars Christian Bale, Ewan McGregor, and Jonathan Rhys Meyers. Oh my. Before we begin, Pat, as our guest host, would you do us the honor of sharing your thoughts on this glittery film? It's very glittery. Uh, Velvet Goldmine is the story of fictional bisexual glam rocker Brian Slade, played by Jonathan Rhys Myers, his affair with fellow rock star Kurt Wilde, Ewan McGregor, and the impact this openly romantic relationship between the two has on the British youth and future rock journalist Arthur Stewart, played by Christian Bale. Beginning with Slade's assassination, which turns out to be a hoax, the story is told in flashback as Stewart, the reporter in 1984, interviews the people in Slade's life to find out what happened to the pop icon after the fallout from his assass- assassination hoax in 1974. If this plot sounds vaguely familiar, that's because, yes, it's the plot of Citizen Kane. Famous enigmatic figure dies, reporter goes searching for the reality behind the image, overlapping stories assemble an incomplete picture of the man. Here, though, the Kane formula, including several reflexive callbacks to that film itself, is reworked to suit the postmodern times, with overt citations of other media and an even more unstable narrator. The main character's death being a hoax neatly encapsulates this postmodern shift. Slade was never anything but an image, and with the hoax, Slade the image really does seem to die, disappearing into obscurity. Another important change is that the reporter in Velvet Goldmine is allowed to have a personality, one deeply and emotionally involved in the figures and the culture that is being spoken about. The publicly acknowledged relationship between Slade and Wilde inspired Stewart as a struggling gay teenager to embrace his feelings and his identity. This feels like the crux of the film. Instead of deconstructing the man, showing him unreachable, unreachable through his image, as in Citizen Kane, I think it wants instead to look nostalgically at the image itself, at, at the image's power to liberate, even when caught um, in, the, in contradictions. Um, so... Uh, I wanted to start this off by acknowledging that, of course, Slade is a, a version of uh, David Bowie, and I think very clearly and overtly so. Um, 
Uh, and I and I was going to talk about how I thought the movie was based on the rumored affair between David Bowie and Mick Jagger in the 70s, but I have been corrected that it's actually based on the uh, affair between David Bowie and Iggy Pop. Well, the character of Brian, uh, well, Brian Slade is more more clearly uh, David Bowie, but I feel like the um, Kurt Wilde character is way more of an amalgam. Like, so I think it, it, I think Mick Jagger is a part of it, but Iggy Pop is like the source of his like image, his like look and the band, the rats is clearly like based on the stooges, uh, the rat and the stooge being, you know, kind of ter- like exchangeable terms. Um, and th- I think there's other people thrown in like, like Lou Reed, um, and, and other kind of characters from that era. So it's, I think it's, less explicitly maybe about the Jagger affair. But as you, you were pointing out that maybe the Mick Jagger affair was the one that was most media like oriented and, and most visible. So maybe it is more directly. I, I mean, it's the one that I knew about coming into this movie, but also I, I don't know much about Iggy pop at all. Like he's not, he's not sort of on my pop culture radar. So yeah, it might've just gone past me, but uh, yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that it's pretty clear, though, that Slade is based on on Bowie. I mean, yeah. d- direct biographical details are taken. Even the way that, that Bowie's career sort of progressed from sort of uh, flower child, late 60s thing into the uh, the sort of birth of glam rock in, in the early 70s. Um, some, of, some of Slade's costumes in the movies just seem like uh, David Bowie's famous 70s costumes, but then with the hues changed uh, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what one complaint I have about the movie actually is that sometimes while I was watching it and they would have, uh, there's so much music in, in this movie and it's all fake. So- I mean, they're real songs, but uh, <laughs> yeah. they're all songs that are supposed to have been written in the 70s, but of course aren't real hits from the 70s. And when I would hear these and uh, Jonathan Reese Myers or whoever is actually singing it, doing their best David Bowie impression, I would just think, oh, I really I really want to listen to David Bowie right now. Well, some of the songs are actually um, covers of T-Rex songs. And Mark Bolin is another one of these lead oh. uh, guys who is, um, I think that Mark Bolin is someone who's thrown in with Brian Slade. Um, because he is someone that, that, uh, died young and, and kind of his band and everything disappeared into obscurity. Um, and there's a lot of T-Rex on the soundtrack, but it's often, uh, covered by this, that they made the wonderful, wonderful thing about this movie is that there were several bands actually made for the soundtrack, um, often covers of, of Roxy music hits or T-Rex, um, but, uh, these bands included people like, uh, like Mike Watt from the Minutemen, famous band, um, and Tom York, uh, from Radiohead. Um, I, know, I know who Tom York is. Yeah. That's, so, I mean, they've, they, they like formed these bands, uh, and, and it was amazing. Uh, Mike Watt is on the, the fictional rats and Tom York is on the fictional, uh, like the, the Brian Slade band, the, uh, well, yeah, the one that's Venus and Furs. Venus and Furs, boom. Yeah, uh, I keep forgetting. Paid attention to the movie. Know nothing about rock history. <laughs> Luckily, <laughs> you have your worked at a record store <laughs> co-host here 
to be nerdy. Yes. Catherine's pointing at herself, not me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not talking because I don't know anything about music in the 70s. Yeah. If it's not clear, I have listened to the same five albums over and over again since high school. Uh, and uh, I have too, but mine just included Radiohead. <laughs> I was going to say that... Um, some of that music did remind me a lot of Radiohead, and I was like, oh, was Radiohead inspired by glam rock? Is that a stupid question? Is that like an easy yes or no? Or is that kind of like... No, I think that that's... I mean, there's... I think glam rock, certainly in Britain, uh, is a huge... And David Bowie, um, in general, is a huge influence for for very... like For like 90s British rock. Although a lot of the 90s British rock, uh, like Radiohead... Um, was kind of a a a, a back to rock root, like back to rock roots kind of thing. Even though, but like Radiohead then uh, evolved in with like computer digital stuff and and tended to like veer in the corner, kind of more uh, flashy uh, arena. So I think that they are way more influenced by people like Bowie and people like. Um, you know, like Mark Bolin and and that. Um, as far as I know, as an expert, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't have I couldn't have come up with any of that. So, can I also ask? So, are you when you're saying that these bands uh, that are providing the music and the covers of the music in the film are they on stage? Then are they like they're they're actually the people no. on stage with McGregor? No, 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 no. none of that. Uh, they're just uh, they did um, studio recordings and then. I think most of the the actual film is is lip syncing and all of that stuff. I don't well, think that is Ewan McGregor's voice, isn't it? Ewan I McGregor know it from and Moulin Rouge. Yeah, Ewan McGregor and uh, Jonathan Rhys Meyers did uh, do vocals, but I don't think it's this. Uh, they're not on stage performing and and right. and doing the with the whole band as a standard in musical. Yeah, band. yeah. Lip sync on stage to something you've pre-recorded. Yeah, yeah. What uh, one thing. Uh, so it occurs to me that there might be like a genre of sort of like rock dramas in the 90s that hadn't occurred to me before I watched this movie. But I thought like this is just the year before Almost Famous, right? This is sort of like I, – I think I prefer this to Almost Famous. But it, it's sort of it's sort of similar in that you have Christian Bale, the, the journalist, sort of like uh, who who is integrated into this rock world to, to some degree – and it forms a, an important part of his identity, uh, and it's sort of a, also a nostalgic look back yeah. at a certain kind of rock in the seventies. Uh, I think I, I would want to say that this has a very different sort of politics than Almost Famous, which is sort of yeah. like pure, n- like sort of quote unquote apolitical nostalgia for a mm-hmm. certain kind of rock and roll. But this movie maybe takes a little bit more seriously, like the impact of. Uh, the image and the way the way the image of the rocker changes in the late sixties and and seventies, um, and how this shaped and formed uh, identity and informed identity for for a lot of people growing up. Then, um, that's more an observation. Yeah. That's, than no, that's a, a great comparison. I'll, and I also like that connection between because I was thinking about Almost Famous while I was watching this or rewatching it. Um, and the journalist obviously is similar to the Citizen Kane. Um, function uh but as you say it's we get to see more of christian bale than we ever do of the journalist and citizen kane and it's not quite the same role as the young kid in um 
almost famous. But I wonder if the reason why filmmakers like that way into the rock world is because like directors themselves feel more akin to the journalist covering the rock band than rock stars themselves, right? Like they're the people behind the people or the people that like make other people famous, but that tell the stories of the people that, yeah. yeah. I mean, the director isn't the actor. They're not the rock star. They're just, they're like the, the facilitator to our celebrity, yeah. celebrity culture, our star crushes, et cetera. But I, I think that Haynes is also using the device, Todd Haynes, the director of Velvet Goldmine, is also using the device from Citizen Kane specifically as a way of acknowledging that like there's no way to actually get to the, the, the person behind the image. Because that's the ultimate message of Citizen Kane, not to spoil the end of Citizen Kane, <laughs> but there, you know, there is no answer. Um, there's absolutely an answer at the end of Citizen Kane, and that would be the spoiler. Well, there, there's an answer, but the answer doesn't. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> the answer doesn't. doesn't Spoiling classic sh- films on Bijou Banter. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that you're right. I think that there's a certain uh, era where Velvet Goldmine and Almost Famous are made where there is this profound a nostalgia for an era of rock and an era of rock journalism that mm-hmm. has gone by, that has seemingly gone by, right? Um, we didn't get to, we're about to end this, we didn't get to talk about how drab the 80s are in this movie compared to the 70s, yeah. just like the difference of 10 years and how different the two eras are represented. So I just wanted to acknowledge that really quickly. Well, yeah, well, yeah, and um, certainly in Almost Famous, like, it's it's said over and over again, like, you're coming at the end. This is the death knell right. of, of rock and roll and rock journalism and, and, you know, and his whole problem is, like, his becoming friends and too immersed in the culture in order to, like, like actually report on it. Um, and yet that's the kind of beautiful journey that you go on, um, which is sort of the same premise in... Uh, in Velvet Goldmine, that yeah. he's too immersed in this culture to kind of get distant enough to actually complete the story on mm-hmm. on Brian Slade. Yeah, I, uh, and to reiterate what you just said, Pat, that depiction of 1980s, uh, the U.S., right, specifically, because he's supposed to be working for a New York paper, I think. I've got that wrong. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, right? he's the... And there's like a fake President Reagan kind of... Yeah, President Reynolds. Reynolds, yeah, yeah. It looks like something out of 1984, essentially, is like the backdrop of contemporary non-glam rock society. All right, let's end there. Again, Velvet Goldmine plays a Saturday night at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. For more information on Bijou After Hours, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss art and craft. According to Bundle.com, the average utility bill for Iowans is $183 per month. I agree that seems a bit high. Green Iowa AmeriCorps is here to help by offering free home audits and weatherizations if you're a veteran, low-income household, or disabled. Green Isle AmeriCorps is a nonprofit organization helping to make Iowans more energy efficient through low impact home weatherizations, energy education, and community outreach. For more information or to sign up for your free audit, call us at 319 784 2735, email us at greeniowacr at gmail.com, or find us on the web at www.greeniowaamericorps.org.
Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film. The documentary Art and Craft follows Mark Landis, perhaps the most prolific art forger in American history, as he is exposed and must confront the legacy of his 30-year career. Landis is an undeniably gifted artist, yet he has chosen to devote his talent to recreating other artists' works and then donating the forgeries to various art museums across the country. So let me repeat that. Landis has been forging paintings for 30 years and has never attempted to make any money from this pursuit. In fact, he proudly calls himself a philanthropist. Because this counterfeiter has never really committed a crime, museum officials who have been duped by his fakes are left with no recourse, other than to plead with Landis to give up what is clearly a very dear (laughs) hobby for him. The forgeries appear to be a form of therapy for Landis, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia at 17. And much of Art and Craft explores Landis's management of his mental health, from various doctor's visits to self-prescribed routines of red wine and cigarettes. I'd like to begin our discussion with the film's portrait of this unusual artist-slash-forger. Given Landis's struggle with mental illness, did you find the film's approach to be at all exploitative of his situation? Or do you think Landis is essentially fair game, given the lengths he will go to in order to deceive museum officials, including frequently donning the costume of a priest and forging documents as well as the paintings themselves? Well, it's pretty difficult to to see some of these uh, scenes where he goes and gets, I don't know how they got access to go into these meetings where his like caseworkers and mental health professionals are asking him if he has suicidal thoughts. Like, I don't know how they got access to that. That was pretty um, intense and personal. I'm actually wondering not just about that, but also they follow him as he's peddling, peddling is the wrong word, but as he's bringing, donating. Yeah. (laughs) As he's donating his, his, uh, forgeries to these museums and and so they just followed him in and filmed him committing forgeries and, and <laughs> intervened in in absolutely no way I, i'm wondering about the access in a lot of ways of this of yeah this film, yeah including including to their sitting in on on his doctor's visit yeah the access is is really fascinating and but at the same time so uh i think that it's sort of uh hmm I don't think it's 100% uh, exploitative because I think that he is, in a way, like what he's doing is this want for attention, right? And he wants to, I mean, the fact that he's caught and the fact that he loves to talk about what he does, you know, um, I think that that's the whole part of of his persona as this philanthropist and and this person who's doing, like he... He knows that it's going to happen eventually that he'll get caught and he knows that like his story is fascinating to people and he, he tells it. Um, so I think that part of this documentary is also a therapeutic process for him in a sense. Like he comes to these realizations, I think by, um, by this process that we go on with him where he's having conversa- like longer conversations about how and why and the source of, of like his family history, blah, 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 the source of this kind of obsession and then his eventual um, kind of 
confrontation of his whole body of, of work in a gallery space later on, um, or not whole body of work, selections from the, his body of work. So it, it's a pseudo-therapeutic documentary as well. So I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I think it'd be difficult to judge. I mean, I don't know. I don't know much about schizophrenia, and certainly I don't know the particulars of his diagnosis. So I, it's difficult for me to say to what degree they're being exploitative and exactly where the exploitation is. I mean, it really depends on his... On, on the level of his awareness of of the implications of uh, what he's what he's doing and what whether he um, how he feels about people knowing and maybe judging him because of it and uh, and all of this stuff and I I honestly I don't if he's incapacitated in some way of seeing that or or thinking thinking that through then it might be it might be exploitative but. Uh, to, to me, I mean, he seems, he seems like very highly functioning. Like he, he knows, he knows what he's doing and why people would consider it wrong. He just doesn't seem to care that much. Yeah. And he doesn't really consider it wrong, which is like, because he's not trying to get money for it. He, he just, he keeps like say, uttering that sentence because I'm not doing anything wrong, you know? And, and you're like. (laughs) It does seem like maybe the question hinges on not just whether or not he knows it wrong, it's wrong, but whether or not we even consider this to be a wrongdoing. And sort of before we get into that, I'd like to um, think a little bit more about the world of art and art collection, because in my opinion, this film, like other films about art and the world of art and art collection, like F for Fake um, or even the Thomas Crown Affair, um, Art and craft can't help but remind viewers that the world of art is a very exclusive uh, sector Mm -hmm. of society. So it's actually not hard to identify with the forger who is often disrupting a system that can literally afford to be disrupted. So I'm wondering, I have a slew of questions here, but like how you feel about art forgers. Am I taking the situation too lightly? Um, should I be concerned about forgeries and authenticity? And also we have to talk about Landis's arch nemesis, Matthew oh Leininger, the museum registrar who first uncovered Landis's ruse and then dedicated his life apparently to exposing <laughs> Landis as a fraud. And I'm wondering about whether or not you empathize more with Landis or with Leininger, the, the, the self-righteous <laughs> art register. I love this character and I love their opposition to each other. I just love. I, I love this. that Leininger's daughter, who is pretty young, can like name his her father's arch nemesis by sight. Like, there's this one part of the movie where Leininger shows his daughter the magazine uh, profile of um, of Landis, and he goes, "Who's that?" And she goes, "Mark Landis." <laughs> he does it, like he does it several other times yeah. too. It's and like flashcards, and it's always on her, his prompting. Exactly, like it's not like she's also sharing his obsession. It's like he's trying to drill it into her head because yeah. he he himself is so well, obsessed and, with this. And there's this one, the, one of the later uh, scenes where where the daughter says, "Are you crazy?" Yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> And, and, she also asks if he's mad at the people from his old job who yeah. who fired him probably because he's so obsessed with with Landis and was making like phone calls and emails <laughs> about this case like on the job and they were like oh boy you gotta shut it down <laughs> well yeah I mean 
so this brings us back to the question of because he is made to look a bit a fool in this film yeah. of like, ooh, yeah. sorry, you should probably let this go. <laughs> um, because truly, because Landis hasn't ever tried to get money from anyone, it's more of an inconvenience and an embarrassment for the museums. Um, they could, I mean, I'm assuming something along the line is against the law that Landis is doing, but it's just not in anybody's financial interest to try and like prosecute him for anything right. because no money's been lost. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so there is this, I, I feel like a takeaway from this film. And as I've said, like other films where you're looking at art forgers, it's sort of like, well, really wealthy people obsessed with art. Like maybe they, maybe getting duped is like not such a big deal. Well, And the world of art. Uh, I used to work in an art gallery, you guys. Uh, <laughs> this is, this whole show is my expertise. Um, the whole world of art is based off of prints anyway. Like most people who have originals, I mean, this is the billion dollar, multi, multi million dollar people. Like most people who collect art collect prints of art. Um, and there's series and they're signed by the artist or, you know, or it's an official plate that you get several prints out of, but it's a limited series. So, I mean, it's all copies, but they're just official copies. They're authenticated copies, right? Um, so I think that there's something delightful about Mark Landis, Mark Lenoir, uh, Father Scott or whatever, <laughs> um, kind of throwing a wrench in this world where where you're like, oh, not that copy, but this copy. And why, why not? It was at least made by hand by someone who want, who made the effort to stain this thing in coffee and, yeah. you know, like, I don't know. I, there's something about it that's really delightfully disruptive of the system, even though he's not actually trying to get money out of it. Um, so even though I, I totally understand that it's not an ethical thing to do, it's a terrible thing to do, but. Uh, I don't, I don't know if it's terrible. I, so yeah, like, can we say it's terrible? Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's terrible because I think what it shows is that, you know, authenticity is important in a lot of ways because a lot of things that we do rely on certain ideas of authenticity. But I also think that it's something of a fiction, uh, something of a myth. But um, we do us three, yeah, or like the people in, in the world, in people in the world. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, even us. You banter. Yeah. Even us, <laughs> Even us, I mean, like, so we, uh, as academics, someday we'll all be publishing papers and stuff, and we're going to rely on not that, like, not the authentic, not that kind of authenticity where it needs to be like our handwriting, but but a relationship between our name and what's written there, right? So we wouldn't so want like anybody plagiarism. else using our name. So so yeah, so like we depend on certain kinds of authenticity. Like you can ascribe this text to me. Um, but I also think that it's something it's something of a, a, a fiction that is used to support um, institutions that generate lo- lots of capital. Um, and I think that it, in doing this, whether this is what he intends or not, I think he's just sort of, well, I don't know, maybe he intends this. But he's showing the way that like this thing that museums rely on, this myth of authenticity, nobody's actually an expert on it. Like you, nobody, un- unless you have a black light. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can't you can't for sure verify the authenticity of anything if the forgery is good enough. And so this thing that's supposed to be a, a real value authenticity that can that can be that, you know, you have experts who can tell oh, to some degree is not a, is not a real thing. 
Yeah, yeah. It's this, this shadow game of yeah of people saying that they're experts, but they're not experts because clearly over thirty institutions across the country <laughs> yeah. have taken these things that are sometimes like digital prints with some paint on them. Uh, I mean, they're wonderfully done, but um, but yeah, it's it's super fascinating. I don't know. I think that. Um, I don't know. I, I go back and forth thinking whether or not it's a terrible thing or not. I mean, all of these, like the, uh, Mar- Matt, uh, Lan- Lanning- Langer, Langer, uh, uh, watermelon, Matt watermelon. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm really jazzed about this persona uh of his but like um the way that he finds all of this out is like via press releases right so all of these museums are issuing press releases that they have this particular piece of art and there's you know their endowment has grown and and it's all about prestige and and so uh it's it's interesting then like we're, we are really seeing how it's impacting the museums but it, it's really impacting them in the world of of their kind of shadow prestige rather than anything actually. Yeah. It's a little bit of like, don't look at the man behind the curtain kind of going on where they're just embarrassed that they put something on the wall that could just like that people would just as easily want to see. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it kind of like undoes the whole ruse of, the gallery and art world. I mean, I'm being a little unfair because I do like the idea of being in the presence of the original. I think it does. There's something mythic about it. There's something about that aura. But um, it's it's but hard would to. You, would you still feel that if it were a really convincing digital facsimile that had paint brushes or paint strokes simulated on it? Do you think you'd still like like in the his example? He does the Picasso right where he mm-hmm. prints out the digital copy and then puts like some sort of paint or lacquer on it to simulate the presence of brush strokes and then like marks it up with a fine needle or something to make it look like it was, you know, touched by Picasso's brush and stuff. And if experts can look at that and think I am in the presence of something that Picasso painted and touched, wouldn't you feel that way in front of the, in front of the, well, in either way, I mean, I think one of the big takeaways from this movie is that like, now I want to be in the presence of a Mark Landis copy. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> not like that sounds like the art exhibit that I want to go to. Yeah. And um, yeah. And then I have to question my own motives. Like if I found out like Matt Leininger ripped off a Mark Landis copy of Picasso, then would I be like, <laughs> shoot, I'm so embarrassed. All right. Well, we can obviously talk about this for days, um, but we'll have to end there again. Art and craft is playing at film scene on Tuesday, February 10th at 6 PM as part of Bijou film forum. A Skype Q&A with director Sam Coleman will take place after the screening. For more information about Bijou Film Forum, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiwa.edu. Before we move on to our next film, let's check on the weather. It's currently 12 degrees in Iowa City. Tonight, there's a low of negative 8. It's mostly clear. Tomorrow, it's sunny but only a high of 15 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. 
In our third segment, we'll be discussing the Oscar-nominated live-action shorts. The live-action shorts are probably my favorite category at the Academy Awards. But before I get carried away, Catherine, can you give us some context to this year's nominees? Yes, glad to. So this year's live-action shorts appear to be somewhat Europe-centric, with two French co-productions, a Swiss film, and two UK entries. But then again, the stories and characters span across a wider landscape. Uh, We have Parvane uh, from Switzerland about a young woman from Afghanistan working abroad and trying to send money home to her ailing father. Next is Butterlamp, a film about images within China, as the story focuses on a photographer and his various setups with Tibetan villagers. The film is a French and Chinese co-production, and the language of the film is in Tibetan, is Tibetan. The longest film of the set at 39 minutes is Aya, about an Israeli woman who gets mistaken for a chauffeur by a Danish man at an airport and decides to go with it. This is an Israel-France co-production with languages of English, Hebrew, and Danish within. The two UK films are more small-scale stories. Boogaloo and Graham is set in 1978 Northern Ireland, a snapshot of family life in front of that tumultuous background. But here the family consists of father, mother, two young boys, and two chickens. Finally, The Phone Call is an emotionally rending film about a shy woman's altering communication with a man in crisis. This film had two very recognizable UK stars, Sally Hawkins and Jim Broadbent. I have to say, uh, as a preface to our discussion, that I really enjoyed each of these films and their tones and textures are really diverse and gratifying. Last year's shorts were fairly brutal and almost overwhelmingly sad, so I was excited to have a good mix of emotional states. Uh, So to jump off our discussion, maybe we should talk favorites. What were your favorites? Well, um, Butterlamp, 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 (laughs) Butterlamp. Can I be the contrary opinion? I I have a problem with Butterlamp. Oh, yeah? So my problem is... Uh, with Butterlamp is so so the the conceit is that it's we're in the camera's point of view and it's these photographers uh, setting these these sort of uh, rural Tibetans or or mostly traditionally garbed Tibetans against uh, these these backgrounds and some of the backgrounds are of like uh, sites in China or Tibet like famous sites one is of Disney World is maybe my favorite is all the Disney characters (laughs) and and so like there's not a lot of there's not a lot of overt drama here, but one that emerges is this sort of uh, conflict between uh, these these photographers with a very modern attitude um, and uh, some of the Tibetans who have who have very more traditional attitudes. So, like the young the young man who wants them to bring an offering to his mother at her grave, or the woman who keeps trying to uh, pray to the to the image behind her. This is the Forbidden City, I think. Of the, of the Forbidden City. Um, so it's about it's about like a traditional way of life and and the sort of uh the simulacrum the 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 fake image that modern life presents the flattened image that modern life presents and then there there's can I ruin the end of this movie is that Mm, like mm. well i don't think that there's it's not really like a so so a the, plot there's a bit to, of a reveal literally i yeah. guess so um, there's a reveal at the end and it's yeah. supposed to be this natural image of of tibet right and but the irony is that they're they're like building an overpass right and so mm-hmm. that's supposed to encapsulate the themes but of course that that overpass is like obviously a digital mat 
like they've inserted that. It's not an actual image. And in fact, I think the mountains might be too. So I feel like the film is sort of contradicting its own message by uh, sort of reconstructing uh, an imagined uh, uh, beauty vision of beautiful, pristine Tibet before uh, modern intervention that is now being invaded by modern life. And they've had to like sort of construct that through digital modern image compositing. No, see, I think that the film knows very well that we can tell it's digital because okay. I think you're exactly right. Like the mountains are digital. The clouds aren't moving. Like it is, <laughs> it suggests that it's a reveal, but, but leads us to sort of the bigger question of the ontology of the photographic image of just sort of like, uh, you know, what does it matter? I mean, like we've gone through all <laughs> these backdrops and like even the one that maybe would be real in the, in a narrative arc of normal cinema, like that doesn't even ring true as real. So that's what we're left with. I thought that that tension was very inten- like uh, the tension was intentional. Um, and I, and I liked that. Um, had it been a punchline, um, then I think maybe I wouldn't have appreciated it because I was kind of expecting that punchline. And so when it got harder to read that image at the end, like, well, wait a minute, that doesn't look real either. Um, I didn't, I didn't I appreciate know it, it wasn't real. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's, that's real. <laughs> I'm in Tibet. <laughs> I guess I'm duped. Three different perspectives. Well, I think that's the what's dupes, so great about this film, the, right? The, re- the rejecting and the, actually, I think your view is the most subtle. I feel Leo's, well, and I think Leo. what would be totally fair is if the director walked in and was just like, "No, that was a totally real image. It was undoctored at the end," and I'd be like, "Wow, even more interesting." I don't know. <laughs> and then I'd be right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what you know, what is real and what's not real, and how do we even perceive the screen is sort of like what's at the heart of that film, and it's kind of nice that it's essentially non-narrative, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, like, that's the great thing about the short film format. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's so funny because I really loved that one. And I don't usually, I usually crave story so much that I get restless with um, with non-narrative. But this also is so short that that it's your, it's totally an enjoyable uh, non-narrative piece, certainly for me, who's like, where's the romance? Are <laughs> there people kissing? Where's the kissing? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, so. I, I liked some parts of it. I did really, I liked the, the backdrop. Um, and I liked the way that, um, so like every sort of vignette or every little shot is just them setting up the photo. And then when they take the photo, the, the screen actually goes black and it goes to, to the next like setting up. So I liked that it was like, um, like if a photo captures a particular moment and, um, uh, you know, necessarily, leaves out everything leading up to that. I like that it was sort of like the obverse or the underside of the of the photo or something, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I really liked the, towards the end of the film where they're um, choosing more particularly the backdrops that are, <laughs> that are coming up. Um, I liked that, um, the focus on like trying to choose which one would be, would be the best or, or like, I was always really excited for the next one to drop. Like I was super curious about the next backdrop, uh, what the next backdrop was going to be. So, yeah. 
And there was a lot of, I mean, it, yeah, I just thought that that, I thought it was the way it handled the subjects. Like it even kind of had this ongoing uh, dialogue of like what they should be wearing, you know, yeah. it's, you know, like it just sort of like teased yeah. out to the surface of like, what do people want to see? Like, in, what do people watching this movie want to see? Like, what do Tibetan people who don't have pictures of themselves, how do they want to look what did they want to look like when they are in their own photos? What does the photographer want them to look like when he takes a picture of them? Like there's just all these conversations about images that were happening on a very subtle level. All right. All right. Yeah. Opinion like- reversed. This, <laughs> is, this is, this is my favorite one. Cause, cause you're right. Because there are times, so they, they want to take labor out, right? One guy shows up kind of late and he's still wearing his work clothes and they're like, take his work jacket off. And like, take his hard hat from him and put a leather jacket on him. And they're like, you look better now. And then yeah. they wanted some people to look traditional, but that the one kid who whose mother had, had died, he was wearing some some traditional outfit that she had made for him and that he hadn't take, taken off in a long time, right? And he was dressed like too traditional for them. Yeah. And they were like, why are you wearing that? Why does he wear that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's all about the construction of, of the Tibetan, I guess. Ah, okay. I love this movie now. <laughs> this is my pick. Well, my favorite okay. is definitely Boogaloo and Graham. Uh, but I'm ridiculously satisfied with accents and animal stories and profanity. So yeah. <laughs> Profanity in a, in a thick Irish... Accent. Yeah, I was just all set. I was all set with this one. Um, but I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe people don't agree about this. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't love this one either. I yeah. I I thought this was one of the weaker ones. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> but I hate children and pets. So. No. <laughs> Well, that's true. Yeah. Um, I was interested with this one in invoking Irish history, but not. Yeah. But I didn't know what I was supposed to do with it. It sort of refocuses us on the family in ways that I that I think are kind of pernicious. Not that families are bad. And it's we should say it's Ireland, 1978. Yeah. Yeah. Set in Belfast in 1978. And it opens like from the soldier's perspective. Yeah. and and then shows you the soldiers walking down this alley and then there's this sort of crane shot that brings you from the alley to a yard on the other side of the wall and you see this like long-haired Irishman you can't see his face at first and he's like got a got a box and you don't know what's in the box and then um you know and he's got like facial hair and he looks like a like an Irish terrorist like a his, rebel. Long, his long hair and his unkempt yeah. beard and then he opens the box and he takes out two chicks uh, and, and so I, I feel like adorable. I, I don't know if I can quite articulate it, but I, I think there's something like the movie wants us, wants to refocus us like away from the political conflict. And then we can talk about the way it depicts the soldiers, one of whom and we see a handsome soldier smiling at the boys later in the movie, whereas we see one terrorist and he looks like a mess, uh, like an yeah. evil, evil, darkly lit mess uh, <laughs> later in the movie. But beyond that, I just think I'm a little bit suspicious of. It saying like this political stuff, this doesn't matter. Uh, let's focus on the eternal family and the values of of um, uh, of love and procreation, basically. Because you know the chickens are also only saved. Uh, the The mother gets pregnant, and then the chickens are saved because they can also reproduce. And so, like, I feel like there's something kind of 
icky going on. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the virtue of procreation is problematic. Yeah, I think. Yeah, R- particularly um, even just sort of like in a Catholic society. I mean, we don't have to like go down yeah. that path, but there is something a little bit. Actually, it's kind of it's like a, it's a Protestant society. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. The the North Northern Ireland. Well, I don't know whether this family is Catholic or or Protestant. It's sort yeah. Of, it doesn't ever really go into it, does it? Yeah. But there is that sort of virtue that like. Oh, procreation is like the salvation of society. Yeah. But it not actually, though, because the chickens aren't actually a, a, a heterosexual match. Um, and it's it's a ruse. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's so weird to listen to the description of this story if you haven't seen it. <laughs> so sorry, audience. The chickens aren't a heterosexual match. What is <laughs> The chickens are saved by the female the by the hen's fertility. We keep, we keep, we we should stop spoiling these um these films. Oh, Although I think Butterlamp was well served uh, to be spoiled. The, given these, that these movies, one was fifteen minutes and the other is like thirteen minutes. It's kind of hard not to talk about them in their totality. <laughs> yeah, right? that's true. That's fair. Um, wait, let's take a quick back and we come back. A uh, quick break and when we come back, we'll keep uh, discussing. Hopefully not spoiling um, every short film uh, that's been (laughs) nominated for an Academy Award this year. Underwriting support for KRUI is provided in part by the Angler Theater, a community arts center and performance space that highlights the talents of local performers, artists, ensembles, and hosts regional, national, and international touring performances. Angler is located at 221 East Washington Street in Iowa City. For more information, dial 319-668-253 or go to www.englert.org. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing the Oscar-nominated live-action shorts. Catherine, you've been been, uh, leading our discussion so far. We've disagreed on... Trying to defend Boogaloo and Graham uh, because of its adorable pet stories. Um, it, That's true. It was fun. <laughs> I mean, the idea of having a pet chicken is like kind of funny in and of itself. A little bit gross, but also, <laughs> also funny. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, are there other ones that we should uh, attempt to spoil or not spoil? <laughs> I I liked uh, I liked Parvana. Yeah. That's the that's the film about an Afghani. Uh, refugee who is living in Switzerland and trying to send uh, money home to her mother. And uh, she cannot because uh, she is under 18 and does not have the right paperwork or something. And yeah, so she doesn't have a valid ID. It's about her struggles as she... And she uh, befriends a an 18-year-old Swiss yeah. girl, right? Yeah. yeah. That it's- was nice because that was like the first one that played. And I, I just had this feeling in like a in a year where like all of the best films were about boys doing boy things and oh yeah, growing true. up and being men and <laughs> being superhero action stars and having midlife crises and like even Wild couldn't get nominated for yeah. a best picture. It was like nice to just be like, oh, a film about women who are friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I don't know, I was a little bit. I guess I was troubled by that one's politics. Oh boy, a little bit. Um, 
because there's this sense that she like she's going through an assimilation process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is how she she's like coming out of her shell, kind of thing, and she's and so that's kind of so she has to give up her her cultural identity to be more comfortable in in the Swiss landscape. So that that I was a little bit like oh. But I, I, but I enjoyed the friendship. I thought the friendship was great, and I, I enjoyed the like actual personal journey that was. But I, I was worried about, like, you know, worried about the the politics a little bit. Well, it does. I, it's. I think like, like maybe a few of these films, it, it is. It is a little sentimental, and I think whenever you have yeah. sentimentality, you're making things a little bit easier than they might actually be, or you're creating some sort of simplification of, of a process that would have many more conflicts and, and, and shades of, of, of gray or subtlety about them. So like their friendship does happen pretty, pretty quickly. And it is pretty much on the Swiss girls terms. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and she like I, I I don't know if I see though I mean so one of the things that happens is that the Swiss girl takes Parvana um, to uh, to like a party to like a big rave ravish type party type of the type of party youngsters go to yeah <laughs> to and the clubs it's yeah. the club Pat. yeah it is well, she, she calls it a party but then they go to the club I don't know yeah uh, so. But I don't know if I saw that as necessarily being a scene where Parvana had to assimilate. I, I guess you could kind of see it because she, like, it, it sort she of. She just starts to. And it's yeah. like, you know, it's not like the girl asks her to uncover yeah. her hair or anything. But it, certainly in the course of the narrative, like, rhetorically, she's assimilating, I would agree, with Catherine there. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. It'd be much more It'd be much more challenging to our preconceptions if she were like, uh, an Afghani girl who, you know, it's clearly suggested that like she hasn't she hasn't uh, had had anything to drink before, like she hasn't had alcohol before. So I think it'd be much more challenging to our presumptions if the Swiss girl was like, "Come to this party," and she's like, "Oh yeah, sure, I love parties," and like, <laughs> you know, like yeah, it, it just feels it just feels like a typical narrative about like, yeah, I guess this this um, uh, this girl from Central Asia who like. This Muslim girl from Central Asia who doesn't know what alcohol is and and something like that. Yeah. Well, but I think that your point earlier, uh, and this is one of the things I kind of wanted to talk about, continuing our conversation from last week's animated shorts is there with with short films in general, you're you're shortcutted to this kind of emotional state, right? Um, and I was mentioning last year's shorts and how they were just like so brutal, and I almost get like confrontationally angry when oh, I, me too. when I'm brought to that point uh, super quickly with a short film, but it's a short film, so they have to bring you there quickly. They don't have to, though. I mean, that sort of seems like what what is sometimes problematic about the live-action shorts. The animated ones seem to kind of free themselves of, of the rules of narrative. Um, most of them seem to, anyway. Whereas the live actions often seem like they want to like get you there. Like they want to yeah. tell this story. They want to like that, that rising action is like you start right at the peak. Like this child is dying. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I hate it when cute kids are dying. And I, it's so sad. And like, 
But like, wh- like why? Like, I think that's why I had such a positive reaction to Butterlamp, which didn't like kind of freed itself from yeah. saying like, hey, it's super short. So let's just like have fun with images and characters in a way that a 90 minute film won't allow for. Yeah. And I, and I feel like maybe a flaw in um, the phone call hmm. is yeah. that it definitely tries to do a Hollywood movie, like a 90 minute movie in, in 15 minutes and hit all of the emotional yeah. views of like a, a tearjerker. When um, Sally Hawkins gives, I mean, oh, one great. of her amazing performances, and there's a, I think like there's a bulk of that, uh, the phone call that I really thought was effective. But yeah, it bookends it with this like other useless narrative in my mind, like yeah, that sort of opening and closing scenes that felt so oddly didactic and unnecessary and yeah. almost a little like um, undercut. Um, what else is happening in the middle yeah. of that film? Yeah, a little, a little bit schmaltzy and reassuring. Like, I, I, I thought, like, yeah, and almost end, offensive in its schmaltziness. Like, yeah. hey, yeah, like this phone call. It's a crisis service phone call, and and trying to like wrap a love story. Yeah, it yeah. seemed like that's pretty, pretty arbitrary. Yeah, I bet it wins best. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, and it's also got the star power in it. Like, yeah. I, and this is one of my questions. Like. Do we think that the live action shorts and the Academy in relation to the live action shorts goes for impact or goes for more of uh, not maybe not maybe subtle is the bad is a bad word to describe, but like more of a complete narrative uh, in a it, something that feels right in a short form versus impact well, thinking back in the last couple of years, they've been a little all over the place. Um, like God of Love was uh, by an American director, a young guy, uh, which felt more experimental and fun and free. Um, last year when, uh, I can't remember what the name of it was called, but it was about the kid who's who's dying. Um, yeah. And I thought that, yeah, I, I didn't appreciate sort of just like ramping up your emotions and calling it a short film. I mean, it was, it was beautifully well, done, so, but it just felt like, this is a snuff film. Oh, yeah. I, I have two things to say about this. Okay. Uh, one, one, one is that uh, I haven't seen the live action short films since 2009. So this is 2014 is the first year I've seen in five years. Uh, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But I will say... <laughs> Was that the first thing you wanted to say? That is the first okay. thing I wanted to say. But I will say that I am—I would be perfectly okay with five short films that were all about the fact that life is misery and pain. Because life is misery and pain. So that's fine. But I also don't... Dark, bro. But I also, <laughs> but I also don't trust... Um, I, I mean, like, when, when a narrative short film that wants a to be to win an Oscar talks about such a thing. They're not going to leave it at that. They're going to end with an arbitrary epilogue with a romance. Um, right. Or, or they're going, they're going to not, not like really uh, challenge us in in any way. Um, so that, that's what I would say. I don't know. I don't know. I, just, I think they're just kind of scattershot with these live action ones. Like, um, they, basically, the winner has always surprised me. There was the one with, um, oh, shoot, I can't even remember where it was from. I want to say Scotland, but it, that might not be right. Um, anyway, I it's useless to try and describe it. But I just feel like I, 
I wouldn't like any, whichever one wins, I'll be like, oh, okay. <laughs> like I would be happy if Butterlamp won, but I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't. And I don't know. I, one of the things that I want to talk about is the fact that the British live action shorts tend to use some of their best actors. Yeah. Whereas American films, uh, the American shorts, like that never happens. But this, uh, the British one this year had Sally Hawkins. The British one last year had um, Martin Freeman. I think. Martin Freeman. Um, so some of these British ones and, uh, just really like, they just like look around they're like, who's our best actor? Let's put them in a film that's 10 minutes long and yeah. see what. Do you want to work for a day, Martin Freeman? Yeah. Is that yeah. like, I don't know what the process is in yeah. Britain. Is it like. Well, I think actors there are less expensive and also they probably have more of a, a niche. I mean, America doesn't have to make big live action shorts. They're not going to get any any particular acclaim doing that, right? Because we are Hollywood. We already give all of our Oscars to ourselves. <laughs> whereas, whereas for 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 Britain, it's a it's it might be a, a niche that they can like they can get some Oscars by uh, putting a little bit of extra money into a live action short and getting Martin Freeman and Jim Broadbent Broadbent or whatever. Plus, they're cheaper than Tom Cruise and I can't name movie stars anymore. I just. Can't <laughs> And John Wayne. John Wayne. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that you're right that, I, well, someone could make a lot of money uh, in, abroad making a Hollywood film. Uh, I mean, making a film about Hollywood abroad. And uh, we all know that the, that uh, Hollywood loves that. The Academy wants reflexive films about, oh, like the about themselves or... yeah yeah oh yeah um yeah or even like i mean hugo uh that was a big one also i, right? I kind of liked hugo wasn't hugo yeah. about france well like, yeah no about, about filmmaking movies. oh just about making movies oh, okay well that one yeah was about um but Certainly, there's other ones that are about Hollywood specifically, and they get very excited about those. Yeah, well, my students were, we were joking last week when we watched The Artist together, and they're like, so the, the only French film that ever wins the Best Academy Award for, um, or the Academy Award for Best Picture, even though France, you know, origin of all filmmaking, it's the, their most, you know, they love that art so much, and like, the only one is going to be the movie about Hollywood. That yeah. <laughs> like, that's I would agree that's pretty telling that yeah. um the academy is into itself. Yeah, yeah. And so they maybe stay out of the the short film game to let the others have some have some time <laughs> so those British stars can actually get some awards. I don't know. All right. Well, um that's going to wrap it up for today. Uh I'll remind you that all of the Oscar-nominated shorts will continue to play at Film Scene throughout this week and the next. For a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and longstanding role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter, Catherine. It's a pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Pat, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me again. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week.